This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Introduce yourself and tell us about your uh, dog life journey. Well, my name is Butch Capel, and uh, as far as my dog life journey, I'm fond of telling people my first job was scooping poop behind about 15 or 20 coon hounds when I was seven or eight years old, and today I'm still scooping poop behind 15 or 20 other kinds of dogs, so that's, that's kind of my journey. <laughs> Some things never change. <laughs> so that's it. I've just done a little bit of everything with dogs, and they've sort of been my passion, you know, so been very fortunate, been very lucky, got a chance to go around the world with Canine Pro Sports and introduce security training to people in a way that's not a sport, uh, not sport oriented, and that's that's what I do today. And have you uh, trained dogs for law enforcement and all that? Oh, law enforcement, uh, militaries, uh, drug cartels, a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> and can you uh, talk a little bit about your uh, your uh, unique program that uh, interests me the most when I when I uh, found out about you? That would be um, that would be my, my singing career. Oh, oh, the Western <laughs> Shepherd. Oh, oh, I thought you wanted a song. Okay. Uh, yeah, the Western. Sh- I tell you what. That's yes. I'm, uh, I'll I'll bend your ear for hours on that. So here's how it all started. About I don't know, twelve, thirteen years ago, uh, a gentleman named Brian Arrington, who uh, used to run the Virginia State Police Canine Departments. We were we were talking, Brian. Uh, brings a lot of dogs over and sells to departments on the East Coast. And he was lamenting the fact that uh, although he's predominantly bringing over Malinois now, the demand for for dogs, for you know working type dogs with the terrorism and everything is so great that uh, even the mouths are starting to show up dysplastic. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know I just I popped off, which I've been known to do. Mm-hmm. And said, oh, you know, I can, I can, I can breed a German Shepherd because I, I don't, I like the calmness of the, of the German Shepherd versus the energy and nervousness of the male. Uh, I mean, the males, they're, they're, they're both great breeds and they've got their own distinct uh, little things about them. But that's the reason I like the German Shepherd. They're just a little calmer and they think more instead of being so as reactive. So. I get a lot of people in the North Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth area that they spend big, big, huge bucks on what they call executive protection dogs. Mm-hmm. And these are generally imports, and they're generally in the twenty to $50,000 range. And I assume they all have excellent hips, which was the biggest concern you know, Bryant had. And these people will want these dogs maintenance. You know, they buy them, and after a couple of years, they realize, ooh, we ought to practice some of this bite stuff because he may not know how to do it. So they'll bring them to me, and I'll tune up their dogs for them. And I thought I could access these dogs. Anyway, to shorten this tale, thinking I had access to some really great dogs, I started looking, X-raying the dogs myself, and uh, I couldn't find a dog that I'd breed to. So... I'd already invested quite a bit of time in it, and I 
I just I just had a hunch, and I, I started researching. My second favorite shepherd breed is the Dutch Shepherd, and I had heard somewhere that there was no recorded incident. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but just no recorded incident of Dutch Shepherds being dysplastic. Mm-hmm. So I, I tooled that around in my head a little bit, and I and I crossed a, a Dutchie and a German Shepherd. Uh, Dutchies can be a little soft, and I got some dogs that were just uh, as they when they grew up, they were they were soft. They just they didn't quite have the oomph, the fire that I was looking for. Right. So I thought, what the heck? I crossed some of those pups back to a Malinois. Uh, make a long story short, uh, I crossed everything and crossed everything. Then I started getting some structural problems uh, as I went back to more of the popular German Shepherd and Mal dogs. So I introduced a little bit of American Pit Bull Terrier, which the, the Pit Bull and the Greyhound are being only two bred strictly for performance type breeds, even today, are, are the soundest two, you know, structurally soundest dogs on the planet. Right. And I bred those pups back uh, to a, a Dutch male. <laughs> you see what I mean? It gets complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, bred them back to a Dutch male. Uh, uh, female, which is what most people think of as Dutchies anymore, and then I bred those a pup of that back to a real good Czech German Shepherd that I happened to own. I got lucky and got, and hence Black Bart and his sister Maggie May were born. Wow! And uh, there were six in the litter. There were there were four sables and these two black pups. And I, to be honest with you, my wife was going to shoot me because we were having these puppies every now and then. <laughs> And uh, we were having trouble finding homes for some of them. I mean, they're all mixes, you know. Right. And so we, I'd actually just give up on the idea. You know, I ain't trying it no more. We're just quitting. And then we had these two little black puppies. And for some reason, I just decided to keep them. And about eight or nine months of age, I'm looking out here at this monster we now call Black Bart. And uh, he's gone everywhere with me. He is uh, just showing me a lot of ability and a lot of intelligence his sister is amazing and i decided what the heck i'll just wait and let him grow up and then we'll we'll see what we got and if that works and it, it did uh here we go so that's how the western shepherd got started wow that's great <laughs> it's confusing <laughs> no i you know I, I i think i followed you um good <laughs> i didn't <laughs> When I was a kid down in South Louisiana, um, I, I got on my mother's nerves a lot, so so I wasn't allowed in the house much <clears throat> till supper time. And I'd go out around the neighborhood, and 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 several of the kids, they they just well, I was ugly, you know, and they just they just. Uh, they, 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 they laugh a lot, and it hurt my feelings, so I started hanging out with, uh, with uh, one of my neighbor's dogs. And uh, I have yet, in, in all these years, I have yet to have one of those dogs laugh at me. So I decided I'd better hang out with him than, than most of the humans I know, and that's not really true because I like humans just as much as I like dogs. But, right. I, you know, I just, I, I can't, I mean, I don't really have a, uh, I don't have an honest answer for that because I have no idea. I just know that I've... I've always, uh, since I was a little bitty kid, uh, I, I just, I just always had a dog around. I don't know. Right. 
as you were growing up, who who became some of your mentors and, and developed helped you develop what you've got going today? Well, Ren Tin Tin would have been the first one. Right. You know, honestly, I mean, there was a yeah. you know there was a TV show back in my day when I was a kid, television show, and it was they had the Adventures of Ren Tin Tin, and I was just. I was just amazed that this dog could be so happy and friendly and, and then, you know, he could whoop a grizzly bear just at the drop of a hat. So that honestly sort of got my interest started. And then uh, as far as, as mentors, I guess I, 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 I was lucky. I started off, you know, wanting to train horses up in the Texas Panhandle and and, uh, and I had a nice little Collie Shepherd mix breed dog who went with me she went with, with me everywhere and i'd pull up somebody's house and say hey i can train your horse and they they'd look at me and say oh yeah and then they'd watch my dog and they'd say well i'll tell you what instead of instead of training my horse i'll tell you what i'll pay you to train my dog if you can make it like yours mm-hmm. so i sort of i sort of got pushed into the corner of training dogs and that led to a stint working in the dog food industry um and then in the dog pet industry in general and that gave me an opportunity to uh, especially with the dog food, because, you know, at that time, Schutzen was just getting imported and big in the country. Um, well, it had been around for about eight or ten years, I guess. And, of course, all the Germans, the current Germans at that time were the guys we looked to. And then uh, as I got to do more and more of it and meet more of these people, I got to meet folks like uh, Doug Deacon, who I think is probably one of the most intuitive, greatest dog trainers at the time. He had all the records for... North American Schutzen, but he also trained police dogs. I think he's an active duty police officer, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, trained uh, at a Schutzen three, scored the highest obedience score ever at the national, at the North American Nationals. I think it was a ninety nine point five, and his obedience score. Consider joining our Patreon community to access exclusive content, early releases, and personalized experiences. Subscribing not only supports Sean from the Bulldog Social Club, but also connects you with a community of like-minded enthusiasts. Whether you enjoy Sean's interviews, appreciate creative processes, or desire exclusive perks, your subscription plays a crucial role. Click the link, subscribe, and be a part of this journey with us. Uh, and the only reason it was a point five is because one of the judges, I don't know, looked at something and his dog had a long toenail or something and dinged him a half point just because he didn't want nobody to be perfect, especially if they weren't German. So uh, <laughs> and so, Mr. Deacon was definitely a major, major influence and, and educator to me. Um, uh, shoot, I'm trying to think. Gary Thompson, or Gary uh, Patterson, uh, wrote some really great books. Again, another good another good uh, top Schutzen competitor. So the Schutzen people through the 70s and 80s, well, they, they pretty much owned the... If you're doing protection training, you were going to have to go with one of the protection people, and those were, they were the experts. They were good at it. Gottfried Dildai was another from Germany who just uh, was really, really showed me a lot of a lot of things about dogs. And and you know the thing about uh, these guys that were really good, uh, Deacon Deacon looked at a dog. He didn't he didn't train a dog to do Schutzen, he trained the dog to do what he wanted it to do. And I think that's from working the streets with a, a canine unit. You know, he, he has to, life doesn't, life doesn't come in a pattern. <laughs> right. 
So, uh, you know, that's a, he learned to train dogs that listen to him so he could make decisions at the moment to solve a problem or maybe save a life, I guess. Right. And and that's uh, that's what I've been uh, always grateful to him for was was kind of showing me the difference. So anyway, those are those are two of the main main people that have influenced or three of the main people that have influenced the way I do today and what I do today. Right. Yeah, I mean it's it's really it's really rather basic. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I was looking for a healthy dog. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want something that's that had a long long life, long healthy life without being crippled. That was that was the that was the whole purpose in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I worked with it more and more and started seeing variances in uh, the types of breeds, uh, the nervousness of the male versus the reactivity of the male versus the the thinking of the German Shepherd, um, the the more handler sensitivity of the Dutch Shepherd versus the aloofness of the German Shepherd, the the total commitment of the of the of, the, of a pit bull. Uh, Versus again because of reactivity, the possible negative reactivity of, of a nervous male. You know, all these all these things factored in. I really started developing. All I was looking for was structure. But as Bart and his sister Maggie grew up, I started looking at Bart. To, to me, and let me be real clear, I could be wrong on this. Anyone who wants to meet me and tell me I'm wrong on this, I'll be sure happy to listen to you and kick you in a kneecap when you're done, because you're because you're foolish. Uh, I, I've been I've been a dogs you know long 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 time, and I've done a lot of things with dogs. Black Bart and his sister Maggie. Bart is like the secretariat of the dog world. Mm-hmm. This this he's a freak. He's a freak. At 18 months of age, when I when I cemented the fact, what cemented the fact that I'm going to recreate this dog, was a real simple act. At 18 months of age, weighing 94 pounds, we clocked him in a 40-yard sprint, or excuse me, 30-yard sprint. At 40, well, the little radio-controlled car he was chasing was doing 41 miles an hour when he caught it. Yeah, so he had to be going faster than the car. Wow. Now, let me put that in, and let me detail this a little bit for you. The average speed on the track for a Greyhound is the biggest the biggest weight class. The, the, the most dogs in weight in the Greyhound racing world, the biggest class is a 70-pound weight class. Right. The average speed of that, uh, that weight class that they run, they average about 40 miles an hour. So, and that's, you know, that's in quarter, half mile, 200 yard sprints, such as that. So here I had this 94 pound dog, 24 pounds heavier than a Greyhound in 30 yards accelerated to the same speed that, 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 that 70 pound dog could. And I and I just you know I, I, you cannot not if you like dogs you cannot not try to recreate that yeah absolutely so that's uh, you know that was when it came about and then as he grew I started seeing the other things the other benefits first off I, I had a guard dog business right that's that was my main thing I was I had guard dogs for twenty years. Mm-hmm. And you know we we put car dogs in car lots with that they had to 
protect by themselves. They didn't have the benefit of a squad of cops behind them to come up and grab the bad guy after they beat him. They had to survive the night if someone broke in and wanted to hurt them. So I don't like little dogs. Mm -hmm. To me, a 65-pound male is always potentially going to get hurt and potentially lose a fight. An 85, 90-pound shepherd is a much better chance of completely stopping a man. Right Right now in maturity, Bart weighs, and he's about four, four to six pounds overweight, but he's right at 112 right now. And and you can anyone who comes out, welcome. If you can pinch, you can pinch a quarter inch of fat on him. I'll I'll pay you for him because <laughs> I don't. He's a lean, hard dog at that weight. And at that weight, there's literally not a man around who can stand up to him. Right. So I wanted a larger dog. I didn't like the smaller mouths. I mean, I'm a, I grew up with bulldogs and catahoulas. So obviously, you know, Mr. Johnson was one of my early heroes, you know, with the American, American bulldog, you know, and Scott and all them people. So, um, um, you know, I like a big, powerful dog. Bart gave me that. Now, the other thing that seems to be now taking off is the no shedding business. Right. All right. Well, that's kind of that's that's kind of a story in itself because I never dreamed of a German Shepherd without shedding. Right. And Bart was two years old, and I'm telling everyone we we had his hips X-rayed. I had him graded and and rated in Denmark because I trust those people much more than I do anybody in America. Right. And the hips are excellent. We supply a, a a picture of the radiograph to anybody who gets a pup. We get, we have radiographs of the parents, uh, if uh, the mother, uh, their hips. I mean, you know, we are serious, or I am serious about this standard. This has to be as close to perfect as a dog can get. Well, that's all I was worried about. And some lady comes out and she says, I've seen, I want to see your Western Shepherds. And I said, well, sure. And Bart, I didn't have any anybody around at the time except Bart. And he comes out, and she's going, wow, ooh and ah. And she's petting him, but Bart is a very affectionate dog, loves especially kids. Mm-hmm. And he'll just, you know, he's he'll just, he likes to be petted. So this lady's petting him, and she looks up at me, and she goes, wow, he's not shedding. And I look back at her, and I said, mm, nope, no, he's not. And she stared at me for a second, and she said, he's not shedding. And, you know, I've, done, I've been around him for two years now. I had never seen him shed. I didn't think nothing of it. And then it went, holy cow. You're right. <laughs> he ain't shedding. And I'm digging through. I'm like, hell, he ain't got no undercoat. Wow. So genetically, I have to assume that the Dutch and the pit breeding into it the lack of undercoat came became dominant, and now we don't have an undercoat. So he, he, it took me two years to <laughs> come up with that sales pitch, and that lady, <laughs> that lady pointed out to me. But you know, that's uh, that's that's what Bart is. He's a no no to low shed uh, shepherd. Wow. He weighs weighs 110 pounds and can probably out sprint uh, most 60 pound dogs. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So where do you uh, where do you see the future with this uh, with this breed? What direction are you hoping for? 
Well, I just, I just, I just want to supply people with good, healthy dogs. I mean, as far as direction, uh, you know, if it takes off with the general public, uh, great, you know. But that's a, a long. I, I didn't realize when I started doing this how difficult Max von Steffen has had it when he was trying to uh, perfect the Alsatian or the, what we call the German Shepherd. Today. I mean, it's it's difficult spreading your gene pool right. and keeping all your characteristics so you know down the road i'd like to see this be a more well-known dog i'd like people to have the opportunity to do you enjoy listening to audio podcasts like i do consider joining the bulldog social club spotify membership for a limited time it's only one dollars 99 get early releases and personalized experiences Subscribing not only supports Sean from the Bulldog Social Club, but also connects you with a community of like-minded enthusiasts. Whether you enjoy Sean's interviews, appreciate creative processes, or desire exclusive perks, your subscription plays a crucial role. Click the link, subscribe, and be a part of this journey with us. To own a really quality dog... Um... You know, they, they trained the one the one consistent thing we, that we get from everybody. I mean, Bart just Bart just makes little he's just like a cookie cutter man. He just throws himself no matter where we breed. Uh, and then I've got an excellent uh, uh, M, uh, French Danish import shepherd named Taza, and she's my my mother line on the other side, who's just tremendous. So you know, we have the ability to diversify. How much? How fast? I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. But. We'll wait and see. For now, I'm just looking for people that are... For now, my goal is for people who really enjoy dogs to have access to one that can be really enjoyed. Right. That's it. Simple as that. And you foresee them doing really well in, in, in competitions and all that, so that... Oh, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't see how any dog can... I don't see how they can be beat if, if there was someone who knows what they're doing. Right. You know, that's that's the biggest that's the biggest thing is getting a, an intelligent uh, handler. Right. <laughs> you, some somebody leads as smart as a caveman. If you if you don't know what that means, go to my YouTube channel and you'll <laughs> you'll see the video. You have to be as smart as a caveman to train a dog. So. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about your uh, your your program, your and what you developed. Um. Sport wise and, and training wise and all that. Mm. Okay, you talking about KM Pro Sports? Yeah. Okay, well that's a that's a good story all by itself. Um, first off, the first Pro Sports trial was actually started in in Mexico, Juarez, Mexico. The um, I was training for a lot of people over there, as I, as I joke jokingly say every now and then. <laughs> Maybe some drug cartel people, I don't know, but. Right. One of, the, one of the folks who had lots and lots and lots of money had imported a Shitson One Roddy, and he wanted him retrained for, you know, for security protection work. And we'd done that, and this guy had access to, like I said, all the bucks in the world. And he loved being the center of attention, and when we trained, there was a big international park there at the border of El Paso and Juarez. And we'd go there and train, we'd always draw a crowd. And Abel said, you know, he called me in one day, and he had a little short guy with a little high voice, and he says, Butch, Butch, many people, many people, make me show, make me show. Oh, what the? What do you mean make me show? So 
he, you know, he said, you know, come up with a format to train for protection dogs, not just not French ring. Those were the the only two bite sports going in this country or Mexico at that time. And so we, I started. I started working. I started calling uh, various uh, people I'd work with, trainers. Uh, a lot of the people in the guard dog industry. That's what I was doing at the time. And I was calling all the old time guard dog owners and getting their opinions about what you know a dog should how how to exhibit what they should exhibit what they should show and we we did a show in mexico uh we had a, a bell had us on television advertising and then we were the big thing and and, then, and everything else we had about i don't know i think it's two thousand three thousand people in the stands watching um it was just a, it was a big 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 deal we had you know we had more teams from america people i knew uh, Bill put up uh, several thousand dollars in prize money. There was no entry fee. He, I think he picked up every. I don't know if he picked up the motel bill, but I know he paid everybody's meal, took everybody out to eat, had a big party. Like I said, paid out several thousand dollars in prize money. And word of the trial, I guess, as the winners came back across to the U.S., they started talking about it, and there was something called Dog Sport Magazine. It was the internet of its day, and Mike McCowan called me and asked me to tell what's, how, how it went, and next thing I know, I'm getting calls from Florida and California and Missouri and all over the country, people wanting to continue doing what we're doing, so we, we worked out a certification system, because there's, there's no place that you can go, there's no consistent anything in America for dogs, period, yeah. and, and even less for a security or a protection dog. So I worked with friends of mine with some of the police associations, and we came up with, with uh, guidelines and minimum standards and written score sheets. Uh, we changed a lot of things. The first the first thing we had a background in rodeo. So when from our very first show, I didn't want one judge. I've never understood one judge in the dog world. It, it opens the door for a lot of politics and brother-in-law stuff. Right. So, you know, the first thing we did was we required two judges. Um, gives everybody a much fairer picture of the dog uh, and what he's doing. It also limits greatly the ability of someone to kind of, you know, like, buddy up with a judge and get away with something. Because if that other judge on the other side of the field sees something, you know, 20 points different than the first judge, there are going to be people, you know, wondering. So... We, we implemented a two-judge system, and then we grew, and we kept growing. We just went doing trials in New York, and next thing I knew, we were getting inquiries from Tony McCallum and Katrina Hartwell, folks like that in Australia, and we were going down there, and then Thomas or uh, Karsten Skiles called me from Denmark, and we were going over there, and then I had a girl named Maki Taki, believe it or not, that's her real name. She's Japanese. She wanted to know more about it, and she came here and learned. And so we were just going in a blowing and going all over the, the place. And then I, I, I got out of the guard dog business for a lot of reasons and came here, and things kind of got uh, touchy. I couldn't run this business. I started a new business and run pro sports, so I tried to – I just kind of let it shut down and die about 2010. But people keep calling me and bugging me, <laughs> yeah. and especially the people in Denmark. They are always bugging me. We work a lot, we work a lot with the with the military over there. Jesper Anderson, um, one of the top canine handlers and, and uh, bomb dog detection trainers. Uh, he runs the the European branch of pro sports, 
And so we just, the cotton picking thing won't die. It just keeps keeps coming back up. So here I am again. <laughs> so, you know, so now I got other people I can send to other, other countries, and I get to stay home and work with my work with Bart, my Western Shepherds. So, and of course we have a training facility here. So we, you know, we train. That that's the bread and butter is you know. Uh, training dogs for the public and and especially the protection security dogs so uh that's what pro sports is and you know again uh since you since there are no certifications uh anywhere else i mean we're the only internationally recognized uh, certification system there is for protection dogs a uh, one other little thing i didn't think about but you know pro sports is the only when, in America, when we want to see the top dog trainers, we go do a German sport or a French sport or a Swedish sport or one of those. And pro sports, I think, is the only uh, I know was the first and and, uh, and still the only American uh, created dog certification system right. that's ever been adapted by Europeans. Right. So you know we must have done something right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so. anyway, you get me see, you get me on my favorite subjects, I can't shut up. Well, that's <laughs> great. You got me pumped up. So that, that <laughs> um, right now, well, you could say it's a combination of dry kibble and and and, uh, and raw, but it's not really raw. My wife won't let me feed nothing raw. She says, you know, her standard's real simple. If, if she wouldn't eat it, live in it, or sleep in it, the dogs can't. Right. So um, we, I started when I had my the guard dog business. Of course, I to cut down on money. I mean, I mean on costs. You know, we're we're looking any any given day. I had any, anywhere from thirty five to maybe as high at times as fifty dogs, the smallest of which would weigh about seventy five eighty pounds. So you know, I had a considerable feed bill. So right. I, I came up with this deal. I could get eggs at a wholesale price. And I would buy rice, and I would get a really high-quality kibble. I remember, I was in the dog food industry. I worked for the Iams Company, Mr. Iams, and or sold Iams, the, the Iams, represented Iams, Iams and Yukonuba. I studied nutrition, and I believe in nutrition. So um, I believe in a high, high-quality kibble. I know how cheap they can make this stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, at the time, at that time, I was feeding Diamond Premium Adult, which is a really good food for the dollar. But along with that, every night I would cook up, and we still do this today. We cook up about 10 to 20 pounds of chicken leg quarters. We boil them till the meat falls off the bone. Mm -hmm. We take the water that we boil them in and the meat, we run that through a blender, and we pour that over the kibble. So I'm getting a, a really good protein that really is not much more than expensive than just buying a quality dog food. Mm -hmm. Um, I like the Victor brand of dog food. I use it for Bart, uh, Diamond. There's a, there's a lot of good foods out there now. So the problem with the all raw diet is real simple. I had a, a good friend with an American bulldog, a, a champion uh, uh, bulldog named uh, Spartacus Bubicus. Yeah. Garrett Brill's a great dog, and uh, Garrett's Garrett's real good. I mean he's. Bubba gets every meal is handmade, right? Right. So he was starting to have, and he's meticulous. Garrett does everything to the max. He's studying. He's an engineer. He studied this dog food. He read Ian Billingsley's books. He did all the homework, everything it took. And Bubba, he'd, he'd retired him from the show ring, but 
he was getting older, but he was starting to have some tremors. And Garrett called and asked me. So we go to my favorite old vet. I only deal with gray-haired old vets. Uh, and uh, Dr. Max said, he feeding raw? First words out of his mouth. And Garrett said, yeah. He said, how many times a week are you giving him heart or liver? And uh, Garrett said, well, uh, about every other day I give, I give him either heart meat or liver meat. And Dr. Max says, there's your problem. Wow. Now, we all think of especially livers being super healthy, right? right. Iron, B12, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, if I remember correctly, there's something that uh, too much liver or heart uh, meat, muscle, will jack with the triglycerides in, in, your system, in a dog's system. Mm -hmm. And it causes misfires of the nervous system which can lead to tremors, which can actually go into, like, you know, get more and more, like, cramps and more serious. Mm -hmm. um, and it was simply because he was feeding a little too much heart and liver. Right. So, you know, to me, it's this highly meticulous, very, very accomplished individual can screw up a raw, a raw recipe that simply. And you know, it's the only screw up he made in six years. You know, I, I just, I trust AFCO, I trust the standards, I just, but I also know better than to trust the dog food companies because they lie like sun, they just, right. on that label, and they got all, all sorts of ways to trick it, and, and you know, and that's, fact, that's one of the things we might do one of these days, how to read a dog food label for our YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but I think by mixing a quality kibble with uh, the, the regular meat, that you know we have very healthy dogs i'll give you here's here's a here's a secret tip one of my favorites you want a little way to keep your your dog's teeth perfectly healthy and clean all his life right okay i hope you got a big audience here okay so here's what you do you're going to go get a rack of beef ribs it has to be beef cannot be pork pork mm -hmm. you're going to take one of those depending on the size of your dog one to f either once a week or once a month at least once their teeth are clean if you got a dog with a lot of tartar on his teeth right now mm -hmm. go go get the rib bone throw him a rib bone two a week for two weeks his teeth will or three weeks and his teeth will be totally white again you lose all the tartar wow then you can maintain with the rib bone meh. bart gets one once a month probably okay uh, what happens is we don't eat beef rib bones because they're tough, right? Right. We can cook the pork ribs because the beef rib bones have all this sinewy tendons going all through the meat. Uh -huh. I mean, they got to hold up a thousand pound animal, so it's tough that meat between the ribs. Well, those sinews, those tendons that run all through that meat between those rib bones are nature's dental floss. Okay. If you feed it raw, if you cook it, you tenderize it. If you tenderize it, you have two problems. A, the tendons and, and, and meat get soft so they don't clean. B, the bone gets hard and brittle so it can splinter. Right. So throw them a raw rib bone. They'll chew and chew and chew. They literally, the, the tendons and that meat on the side of the bone are enough to totally break up all the tartar and remove it from your dog's teeth. Then... 
since the rib bone is not as a non-weight bearing bone, in other words, the the big thigh bones you see in the pet stores that are basted, right. you know, they're holding up maybe a two thousand pound bull. Well, them things are dense and hard. Hell, they can crack a tooth. A rib bone is not carrying weight, so it's not as dense. Which means once the dog's chewed the meat off, they can chew on the bone to get to the marrow inside, uh-huh. and that that softer bone will actually keep shaping and sharpening the teeth to keep the, keep their shape healthy. Oh, that's awesome. I'm so gonna, I'm going to try that. Try it. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great info. Yeah. yeah. See, that's why I like to ask that question because you, you get some really good answers. And, mm-hmm. and, I'll, and I'll tell you what, I've, I'm convinced just by listening to so many people and asking that questions that the raw diet is – is so unscientific really you know what i mean because each dog is going to react differently and great point yes so tell me about your uh your your kennel setup what what does that look like and and how hardy are your dogs with because i i used to live in texas as well and i know that humidity and stuff how do how do they Mm. handle the heat yeah, well, we got a 40-run kennel. We have 20 runs down each side, indoor-outdoor, 10-foot runs on the outside. This, this kennel is old. It was built in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It was closed for 20 years when I came and reopened it because it's the only thing I could afford. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we're, we're constantly rebuilding, remodeling, but it's it's a practical kennel. It's not made like today's pet motels with the potpourri in the corner and the animal planet on the TV and all that <laughs> nonsense. <laughs> this is this is a dog kennel. They got a 14-foot run. They can run up and down. They can bark at their neighbor. They can bark at people that drive up. And then we have two training yards, uh, agility yard, and then where we do most of our bite work. Uh, we're out in the country, so we get on the country road. We get to go walk them down. They get to go past cows and goats and everything else. Um, it's it's a, you know it's a good setup for dogs. It's not for people. Uh, you know, I'll never forget when I first pulled. I wasn't real familiar with folks in the in the city. Being you know, living all my life in Abbeville, Louisiana, or Amarillo, Texas. I just you know. I pulled, a lady pulled up out here about boarding her little dog, and she, I'll never forget, I walked out, started walking out from behind her. She stepped out of her car, and she's staring at the kennel, and I'm looking at her back, and I hear, as I approach, I hear her go, oh, my God, it's, it's a kennel, and she just stares, and then she jumps back in her Cadillac and throws it in reverse one, <laughs> flies out of there, you know. So, oh, my God, it is a kennel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's not, it's not definitely not for a lot of, that's what I would consider the cosmopolitan folks, but it uh, works real good for dogs. <laughs> right. yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so what kind of breeds... Uh, Besides the the shepherd breeds, do you uh, like to work with? Uh, I, my favorite breeds are four footed with fur breeds. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I like. I, I don't care what it is. I got I got a little mixed breed terrier. I got you know, I got a Basenji in the house, and I got an Anatolian in the house, and you know, I just I, you know, for, for right now my biggest my biggest entertainment is the french bulldog that my my daughter's got uh so you know heck dogs are dogs are just great they're they're just they're just like people you know they all have a personality they all have different things you like the only 
the only difference between them and people is dogs don't have the mean, conniving, jealous bones in their bodies. That makes them pretty fun to be around. Yeah, no doubt. You know, so I like them all. <laughs> Although I do, I do refuse to do obedience with a basset hound. I'm sorry, I've owned a basset hound. I have tried, attempted to train several basset hounds. I do not accept basset hounds as customers. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Are they just that stubborn or dumb or both? No, I don't think there's any dogs that are dumb. I think they got different ideas and they've been bred to do different things. And, and basset hounds, all hounds, but basset's worse than most because they're closer to the ground, right? Right. And they've been bred to have this humongous nose and this curiosity. And they're never more than three inches off the ground anyway. So, you know, you're trying to teach them something. Man, they're smelling. Hey, wow, this one is going by here four days ago. I better go follow him up and see if he got home okay. You know? That's, uh, that's why I don't do basset hounds. They got, they got other things to do, by golly. They're busy. How's been your experiences with the, the breed that I have the most experience with, the English Bulldogs? How are they to the train? Oh, I've had an English, my, that was my first dog my daughter got of her own dog when she was 16, and she's 30 now. We've had dozens of English Bulldogs. The first one, Sexy Sadie, we called her. She was, she was bike trained. Um, I actually used her to train some, some of the decoys that would come over. You know, the, a big, a big, I have a radically different way of doing decoy work than what you see most of the people uh, do. And, and one of the big things if you're training dogs for the street is you learn to, to, for a lot of reasons, not just one, but for several reasons, you learn to catch all the dogs when they're doing a the bite work in a profile. You don't want to stand frontal uh -huh. and face the dog because the, the first most obvious reason, maybe not the most obvious, but the first reason is if you're a male and you're standing facing a dog, you've got certain parts. <laughs> You know that you don't want the dog to partake of. <laughs> so you know the the thing the thing about an English bulldog is even uh, Sadie was uh, very athletic for an English uh, and, and a pretty big girl, but uh, they still you know they're limited. There's two things they can't do: they can't swim because they sink like a rock, <laughs> and and they can't jump more than you know 27 inches off the ground. Right. You know so. What, what I, one of the main things I use Sadie for was I get some of these guys, especially some of the, the guys from Mexico that come over and want to be, you know, if I can't be a bullfighter, I want to be, I want to be a decoy. So uh, they, they'd stand right there facing right in front of the dog, kind of squatting down their legs wide open. And hell, I'd just send Sadie and she'd run straight towards them. They'd hold that arm out in front of them like sport dog people do. And she'd jump. And, of course, she couldn't reach the sleeve, but she could get crotch high. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not one of those people ever stood full frontal again after they caught her one time. <laughs> Best instructor, I like English Bulldogs. I like Bulldogs. Bulldogs are just, Bulldogs are great. You know, they're, they're, they're one of those working breeds that, you know, if you go back to Mr. Johnson's American Bulldogs, they're still they still have it, so they're great dogs. Yeah. Love them. Yeah, I do too. I, I, 